Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, the immigration courts and due process with City Bar Senior Policy Counsel Maria Salenti speaking with Vicki Nielsen, who is chair of the City Bar's Immigration and Nationality Law Committee, senior attorney with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network and adjunct professor at the CUNY School of Law. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Maria Salenti. There's been a lot of news lately about immigration issues, including about how cases move or don't move through the immigration courts. The City Bar's Immigration and Nationality Law Committee, chaired by our guest Vicki Nielsen, recently submitted testimony expressing concern over changes in procedures that likely will have the effect of speeding up the deportation process at the expense of due process and the independence of immigration judges. And it's all happening against the backdrop of what seems like an increasing number of dramatic immigration arrest and deportation stories of longtime residents and the well-established principle that all persons in this country, regardless of immigration status, have rights to due process under the Constitution, including in immigration proceedings. There's so much to talk about in the area of immigration law, an area known for being complex, fast-changing, and politically charged. I thought today, though, we'd focus on the immigration court system, which itself is unique and is the setting for where much of the complex field of immigration law plays out. So thank you, Vicki, for joining us. And I'd like to start with the structure of the immigration courts. When did the immigration courts first come into existence, and how are they set up? So immigration has been uh, adjudicated for for many years initially it started under the treasury department and then it moved to commerce and then labor and then finally to justice in 1952 uh, the there were special inquiry officers who were tasked with deciding cases uh, in 1973 their title changed to immigration judge and they were given the ability to wear robes and then in 1983 the sub agency that currently exists within the department of justice called the Executive Office for Immigration Review was formed. So basically, the the courts as we know them today have been in existence for about 35 years. And under what branch of the federal government do they fall? Sure, they're all within the Department of Justice, which means that ultimately they are part of an executive agency and the immigration judges, as well as the appellate body that um, issues presidential decisions, the Board of Immigration Appeals, um, are all... Uh, fall under the leadership of the Attorney General. And what's the impact of, of being a an adjudicor, adjudicatory body under the executive versus under the judiciary? Well, I think what we're seeing today and what we've seen over the course of other administrations is that it's not an ideal system. Um, immigration is a very um, hot-button political issue, and having an adjudicatory body within the executive branch um, is problematic. I mean, essentially, all of the immigration judges are ultimately appointed by the attorney general and answer to the attorney general. So when, as we have now, um, an attorney general who regularly engages in sort of heated political rhetoric about um, immigrants and and our immigration laws, it creates a sense that the judiciary, the immigration court, judicial branch is is not um, is not truly independent. So can you give us a sense of how cases get to immigration court? Who, who are the people going before these immigration judges and, and what sorts of 
um, what kind of relief are they seeking? Yeah, so there are a number of ways that cases can end up in immigration court. Um, it can be a person who crosses the border and doesn't have um, any papers that, that allow them to enter the United States. It can be somebody who's been in the United States for a long period of time, either someone who's here undocumented, maybe who gets caught up in a raid, or it could be you know, a lawful permanent resident or someone else who um, has a lawful non-immigrant visa who has violated the terms of that visa in some way. So the types of cases that come before the immigration judge um, are primarily deportation cases, which are now called removal cases, um, but they can also be bond cases for people who are um, in immigration detention facilities seeking to get out. Um, and I think one of the things that has um, really changed is that immigration law is getting more and more complicated as there have been more appellate decisions on, on many different areas of the law. Um, it's not just a straightforward um, evidentiary hearing. There can be motion practice and, and other um, you know, motions to suppress, motions to terminate that, that can lead to sort of lengthy uh, proceedings with really complicated legal arguments. Do, do individuals start out at, at right in immigration court or do they typically go into court after having some um, agency official who's made some determination that they are then bringing to the immigration court as, as sort of an appeal of that agency's decision? Right. Yeah, so thank you for asking. That, that's another primary way that um, non-citizens can end up in immigration court is if they make an affirmative application to uh, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. If that application is denied, um, then that's another way that somebody can be placed in removal proceedings. So, for example, if uh, a couple seeks a green card based on a marriage, if that application is denied, the non-citizen and the relationship might end up being put into removal proceedings. Or if somebody files affirmatively with USCIS for asylum and the application is not granted by the asylum office, that, that person would be put into removal proceedings. But I, I should add, I'm sorry, that, um, that those are not appeals. Every removal hearing that goes to an immigration judge is a de novo hearing. So the immigration judge is not reviewing the determination of the agency official. They, they, it's de novo, they hold hearings, they take it from scratch, basically. That's right. In a removal proceeding, is the respondent uh, entitled to counsel? So under the Immigration and Nationality Act, um, respondents have a right to counsel, but at no expense to the government. So if somebody has retained counsel, they do have a right to have that counsel present. But if somebody can't afford to to retain counsel, or if somebody is being detained in a very remote part of the country where there simply is no counsel within any reasonable distance, then then there is no right to counsel. Um, and you know there are nonprofits that provide um, legal services, but again, they, there's not nearly enough um, free legal services to provide counsel for every immigrant who could use uh, a lawyer. And is that because the removal proceeding is considered a civil proceeding and not a criminal proceeding that no right to counsel attaches? Yeah, it is considered a civil proceeding and there has been litigation um, trying to establish a right to counsel um, in immigration court proceedings. Um, there was a Ninth Circuit case trying to argue that at least children um, should have a right to counsel, and that case was not successful. Um, it's 
ironic um, because in many ways um, immigration court proceedings do mirror criminal proceedings. Um, Non-citizens can be detained in the exact same county jails that um, criminal defendants are detained in, and yet they don't have any right to counsel, um, even to seek liberty from from government detention. Um, and you know the stakes in immigration court proceedings are incredibly high. People can be separated permanently from their family members. People who fear their governments can be sent back to um, potential persecution. Um, and even you know, the US Supreme Court in the Padilla case um, basically said that in criminal court proceedings, uh, defense attorneys are required to have a sufficient understanding of immigration law to adequately counsel their clients about what types of, of pleas they can take that would not affect their immigration status. So in the criminal context, the Supreme Court has recognized that part of the right to counsel includes um, uh, adequate counseling on immigration consequences of convictions, and yet that same immigrant who might be entitled to adequate counsel in his or her criminal proceedings would not then be entitled to counsel in the deportation proceedings that, that would seek to actually expel them from the country. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about the legal orientation program? Yeah, so there has been um, some government funding, some federal government funding for something called the legal orientation program, um, which has funded nonprofit agencies to give um, sort of basic know your rights or, or orientation at detention facilities primarily. So these are, you know, one hour orientations that explain to detained unrepresented um, non-citizens how the process works, what the possible forms of relief are that they might apply for. Um, and in some instances, those uh, attorneys also have one-on-one -on -one meetings to screen people to let them know whether it seems that they might have relief or not. Um, this is a program that the Department of Justice itself has said is a successful program that language is on their website, and immigration judges also agree that it actually improves efficiency because if the individual, for example, has no relief, it's in everyone's best interest, particularly for a detained um, non-citizen to accept a removal order and, and leave quickly. Or if somebody does have relief, it's better for them to understand um, the processes that they would have to go through, the applications they need to file, the types of evidence they need to procure um, as quickly as possible. Because if that, uh, if that person doesn't have a lawyer, uh, it's incumbent on the judge to explain the processes, which is really not the best use of, of a judge's time on the bench. Mm -hmm. Uh, but recently, um, the Attorney General has announced a, a pause in the funding for this program, and that's something that um, immigration attorneys uh, are very concerned about because it, it is a successful program, um, sort of from all, all sides seem to agree that it's a su successful program, so it's hard to understand um, why they would pause this program. And, you know, again, even looking at it from the federal government's perspective and in addition to increasing sort of basic due process rights for non-citizens it seems to increase efficiency for the courts which is uh, a primary concern for the federal government at this point speaking of immigration judges I, I can understand why they would find this a very helpful program uh, how how does one become an immigration judge so the it's a when immigration judge positions become available they're posted on the 
USA Jobs website, um, people have to file a lengthy application, and ultimately the appointment is made by the Attorney General, since they, they serve the Attorney General. Um, the process is somewhat opaque after submitting the application, and I think one of the um, difficulties with the immigration backlog and the, the inefficiencies in the court is that it takes on average 21 months to, to hire an immigration judge. Um, so even if there's a commitment on all sides to increase the, the bench, it's taking an extraordinary amount of time to do so. Um, there really is not much transparency uh, about who gets hired and who doesn't get hired. So um, there are, there have in the past been concerns under um, Attorney General um, Alberto Gonzalez, for example, that there had been um, political, a sort of political litmus test in hiring immigration judges, and and um, several uh, Democratic representatives recently um, sent a letter to the Department of Justice questioning whether similar um, sort of political litmus tests are being employed now because they're they had been contacted by roughly 20 um, judicial candidates who've been approved for the positions, but not been moving forward in the hiring process. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the backlog. The backlog's near about 700,000 cases, is that correct? I think it, I don't know the exact number. The last I read was over 600,000, but it's sort of a moving target. Mm -hmm. But in mm -hmm. any event, it's well over half a million cases, which is a staggering number. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the recent um, decision by the Attorney General to impose uh, case quotas on the judges. Some call them performance metrics, other people call them case quotas, but can you talk a little bit about what it is that the Attorney General wants to uh, put into effect this fall? Yeah, so uh, beginning on October 1st, immigration judges will be um, subject to performance review metrics. Um, under this quota system, um, they're supposed to close 700 cases per year. Um, doing the math with a 48-week year, um, that would mean that each judge should be finishing three cases per day. Um, and that is just a sort of impossible number because judges, in addition to hearing individual uh, trials, um, have master calendar hearings, which are sort of like arraignment dates. Um, they have to go to trainings, they have to do administrative work, they have to do legal research, they have to um, do administrative tasks. Um, so immigration lawyers are quite concerned that these quotas will put pressure on judges to make hasty decisions to um, order people removed um, more quickly, um, and one of the other aspects of this performance review memo is that judges are supposed to finish 95% of individual hearings on the day that they start them. And most individual hearings, meaning the actual you know, evidentiary hearing in a case, are scheduled for about two to three hours of time. Um, and in many cases, um, it just takes longer than that for testimony. The vast majority of immigration court proceedings require uh, the use of an interpreter, so that basically doubles the amount of time that it takes uh, to take testimony. Um, you know, in many cases, there are witnesses in addition to the re respondent himself or herself. There may be family members who testify. There may be expert witnesses, such as a medical expert, a mental health expert, a country conditions expert, um, and I think judges are going to feel 
much more pressure to exclude witness testimony to complete hearings within these metrics. Um, and that's just not good practice. It will lead to more appeals and again, actually end up decreasing efficiency rather than increasing efficiency. Are, are there appeals as of right from the decisions of the immigration judge? Yes, so also within the Department of Justice is the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is a, a federal appellate body that does hear uh, appeals of removal proceedings. Those appeals are as of right. Um, and then if an immigrant wants to take an appeal beyond the Board of Immigration Appeals level, they do that directly to the federal circuit court, um, which is also an appeal as of right. Is there anything else happening on the ground that you're seeing in your practice over the past year uh, that has impacted how you're representing your clients? Well, I think that what we're seeing is is uh, sort of um, onslaught on, on due process in general. I think we're seeing a real change in perspective of the role of immigrants and immigration law within um, the United States. Um, so even so, you know, in in 2002, following the September 11th bombings, um, the Department of Homeland Security was created. So it used to be that, uh, in addition to the immigration judges being housed within the Department of Justice, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which had both the prosecutors in immigration court and the um, agency adjudicators for benefits uh, were all within the Department of Justice. That was split up after 9-11, um, so the immigration judges are still within DOJ, but the Department of Homeland Security, which has um, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the enforcement branch of the, of the immigration agency, and United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the benefits branch. So, um, you know, if you're applying for a green card, you apply with USCIS. If you get caught in a raid, it's ICE that catches you and it's attorneys that work for ICE that are the prosecutors in immigration court. What we're seeing is sort of across the board, both with ICE and with USCIS, that there's been a real shift from um, sort of trying to find the right solution in cases to trying to deny cases. So we're seeing um, much longer um, delays at USCIS, we're seeing requests for evidence in cases that used to be routinely granted. We're seeing um, mandatory interviews in green card cases that used to be decided on the papers. Um, and really, I think this is coming from as a, as a foundational shift um, from the top down where, for example, family unity has been the cornerstone of, of immigration law for you know 50 years and where that had been seen as a net positive for our country, um, the term family unity has largely been replaced with the, tame, with the theme of quote unquote chain migration, which is seen as a pejorative. Um, and I think that that is trickling down um, even into USCIS. Can you talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned the prosecutor, uh, the, whether it's an ICE prosecutor or another prosecutor in immigration court. Can you talk about the role of the prosecutor in these cases? Yeah, I think that that's another area where we've seen a, a real shift in the last year. Um, you know, under, under President Obama, who, I mean, certainly immigration lawyers had many concerns and critiques about the way that President Obama handled um, immigration uh, proceedings. Uh, 
But one thing that he did implement, which I think made good sense, was he gave ICE attorneys, the prosecutors in immigration court, the authority to exercise prosecutorial discretion in particular cases. So um, under the past president, we had uh, enforcement priorities, which were logically and transparently laid out that they were things like, you know, people with serious criminal records, recent border crossers, you know, repeat immigration violators. So as an attorney working with immigrants, you could um, have some understanding of which cases were going to be seen as, as the top priorities for the prosecutors and which cases would be seen as lesser priorities. With this administration, they've essentially said that, that there are everyone is a priority so by making everyone a priority you know no one is a priority and what that has also done with the attorneys uh, working for ICE is instead of looking at each case and and trying to decide as prosecutors should you know what is the just result in this case is this someone who the United States really should be seeking to remove as quickly as possible is this someone who you know is just uh, you know here to work and raise a family and hasn't done anything wrong other than a civil violation of an immigration law, um, those uh, abilities for the, for the ICE prosecutor to prioritize among their cases have been stripped from them so that they can no longer mark a case off calendar or, or get grant a long continuance. They basically have to approach every case as if it's a priority, which um, you know is, makes it very difficult to, um, to practice in a, in a rational way. What would you recommend, or what did your committee recommend in the testimony I referred to earlier to address this significant backlog in the immigration court? Well, certainly um, adding resources to the immigration court is a, is a top priority. Um, at this point, there are just over 300 immigration judges in the United States, um, contrasted with over 45,000 Customs and Border Patrol agents and over 20,000 ICE agents. So if you just look at um, you know, a law enforcement agency that's of over 65,000 agents putting people into immigration court proceedings, um, and then 330 immigration judges who are, who are um, tasked with hearing their cases and, and making sure that every uh, non-citizen has a fair day in court. You can see how, how disproportionate those numbers are. Um, I, I also think that, and our committee has recommended, that this is too important an area of law to be subject to political wins. Um, it shouldn't be part of the executive branch. I mean, this this particular executive has taken a, a very politicized view of immigration, and that is making its way into the immigration courts. The courts are, um, you know, uh, uh, should be adjudicating faces, cases fairly on the on the face value of the case and, and not based on any kind of, um, you know, political win. So we would recommend as well that, that a new um, uh, court in Article One court be established that's completely outside of, of an agency and that the um, judges go through an appointment process either similar to federal court judges where there would actually be a Senate confirmation or similar to Social Security Administration judges who get vetted by um, the OBM instead of being appointed at the will of, of the Attorney General who's an, a political appointee. And, and finally we would just say that they in addition to more resources, meaning more judges, um, they should just function more like a, you know, a 
federal court. Um, at this point, judges don't have their own assigned um, law clerks. They have pool clerks, so there's a lot of basic research and, and case preparation that judges have to do completely on their own. Um, almost everything in immigration court is in done on paper files. There's almost no um, electronic filing available. Um, so there's a lot that could be done just to, to bring um, the courts into the 21st century. Are the immigration judges speaking out on any of these issues or the backlog in particular? I mean, the immigration judges uh, union um, has certainly come out strongly against the performance review um, quotas. Um, the former head of the immigration judges union, um, immigration judge Dana Marks, has um, accurately described the job that immigration judges are asked to do as as deciding death penalty cases in a traffic court setting. Um, it's a it's a very chaotic, stressful, high paced setting, and you know the decisions that judges are asked to make are not only extremely complicated legally, um, but hearing testimony from people who, you know, may suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and who speak, you know, hundreds of different languages and who come from hundreds of different cultural backgrounds. I mean, it's an, an incredibly difficult job to be an immigration judge. Um, and I think that this quota system, which, you know, treats them as, as widgets instead of adjudicators, um, is really demeaning and, and demoralizing for them. You referenced the establishment of an Article One court or an independent court for uh, immigration. That would require Congress to act, correct? That would require Congress to act, yeah. Um, I mean, at the Senate hearing, which took place a couple of weeks ago, the um, GAO had recommendations about um, the possibility of establishing an Article One court. I mean, this is something that the federal government itself has been looking into in the GAO's own report um, when they spoke with 10 outside experts. Um, it seemed that the majority of experts thought that having some sort of independence, whether that would be creating a new agency separate and distinct from DOJ that only housed um, immigration judges or whether it meant um, having some sort of Article One court, like bankruptcy court, um, would uh, give them greater judicial independence, greater control over their docket, um, and uh, give less of an appearance of, of lack of independence. What do you say to those who argue that, given what the federal immigration law says, uh, that the executive has the ability and the right to prioritize it and enforce it as it sees fit, and that the solution uh, to a lot of what we're talking about lies in, in Congress, and that those who want a better system or think the law is too draconian should, should be working towards a legislative solution? Well, certainly immigration lawyers have been working for a legislative solution, um, I think, since the last overhaul of the immigration laws in, in 1996, which gave us um, many draconian laws that we are still feeling the after effects of. Um, that being said, I mean, yes, absolutely, the role of the executive is to enforce the law, but uh, I think the executive is 
uh, required to enforce the law in a way that's humane, rational, and constitutional. Um, you know, just because a law exists on the books, you know, for example, uh, so, you know, the police can pull someone over for going one mile over the speed limit, but they don't do that all the time. I mean, it doesn't make sense for um, the federal government to prioritize removing people who have U.S. citizen family members and who um, haven't done anything to break any criminal laws. Um, I think that, um, you know, we certainly hope that there will be congressional action, particularly on people with DACA who've been here for many years and, and see the United States as their home. Um, but, you know, it's been several times that we've come very close to achieving immigration reform and, and haven't made it over the finish line. Well, thank you very much, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. This conversation took place on April 25th. Please note that since that time, the Department of Justice has reversed its decision to suspend funding of the Legal Orientation Program, which is discussed at the 9 minute, 38 second mark. To read about the City Bar's positions on immigration and other policy issues, visit our website at nycbar.org. And find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play, or visit our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.